This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York, and we begin with the latest from Ukraine. Regrouping, not withdrawing. NATO says Russian troops are repositioning and reinforcing their offensive in Ukraine's Donbass region while keeping the pressure on Kyiv. That's despite the Kremlin's assertion earlier this week that it was scaling back operations around the capital. Russia has repeatedly lied about its intentions. So we can only judge Russia on its actions, not on its words. According to our intelligence, Russian units are not withdrawing, but repositioning. Russia is trying to regroup, resupply, and reinforce its offensive in the Donbas region. In the besieged port city of Mariupol, a convoy of buses will be used to help evacuate civilians. Russia agreed to open a humanitarian corridor. But remember, we've been here before and Russian promises were broken. It's now five weeks since the invasion began and there are signs morale is flagging. Russian morale. The UK's intelligence chiefs say soldiers are refusing orders, sabotaging their own equipment and struggling with low supplies in what appears to be a massive miscalculation by President Putin. It increasingly looks like Putin has massively misjudged the situation. It's clear he's misjudged the resistance of the Ukrainian people. He underestimated the strength of the coalition his actions would galvanise. He underplayed the economic consequences of the sanctions regime. And he overestimated the abilities of his military to secure a rapid victory. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces have retaken the town of Sloboda, about 12 miles from Chernihiv, where the Russian military is trying to surround the city. A bombed Russian tank was left ablaze. Negotiations between the two governments are set to resume on Friday, though Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky calls the talks only words. Australia has agreed to send millions of dollars of military aid after the president addressed lawmakers in Canberra. By the end of today, President Zelensky would have spoken directly to the parliaments of 17 different nations. Ben Weidman is in Mykolaiv in southern Ukraine, not far from Crimea. Ben, great to have you with us. We spent a lot of time talking about the potential repositioning of troops from places like Kyiv to the east of the nation. But you're also in the south and an incredibly pivotal and important part of the nation with the sea access from ports in the area. Ben, what are you seeing in terms of perhaps intensification of violence in those areas? Well, what we're seeing, Julia, is in fact the city here is preparing for what they fear could be a Russian assault, a new Russian assault. In fact, what they've done is their city workers are cutting down trees. Here we're on one of the main boulevards. Uh, They're going to use the big trunks to reinforce barricades and trenches. And the smaller branches will be used to provide firewood to soldiers on the front line, uh, fuel to those uh, hospitals and other facilities that don't have electricity at the moment. And regarding what happened here on Tuesday, that regional governor's headquarters that was struck, the latest, the death toll has now reached 20, more than 48 hours after that strike by Russian forces. They are still pulling bodies from the rubble. 
Somewhere in this jumble of concrete, bricks, and twisted metal are more bodies, trapped in the ruins of the office of Mikolaev's regional governor. Tuesday morning, a Russian missile struck the building, killing more than a dozen people, wounding many more. They bombarded our city, and only civilians are dying here. Mikolaev Mayor Oleksandr Sienkovich doesn't normally come to City Hall like this, but he saw war coming long ago and prepared himself. Uh, I, starting from 2014, I thought that the war will be like this. So everything you see on me, this bulletproof vest, boots, anything, I bought it a couple years ago. So I started to learn how to shoot. I was in a special school for that. On the outskirts of his city, recently downed Russian attack helicopters suggest the Ukrainian military also saw this war coming. They've managed to stop Russian forces in their tracks, regaining territory lost at the start of the war. Five-year-old Misha is recovering from shrapnel wounds to his head in the basement-turned-bomb shelter at Mikolaev's Regional Children's Hospital. His grandfather, Vladimir, shows me phone video of the bullet-riddled car Misha's father was driving with his family to escape the Russian advance. Russian soldiers, Vladimir calls them bastards, opened fire on the car, killing Misha's grandmother and mother. As we speak, the air raid siren goes off. Taking shelter is an oft-practice drill. Stay calm and carry on. Wow, Ben. And Julia, here, you can hear right behind me now. Please. Sorry, Julia, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you because the air raid siren is going. Go ahead. Yeah, so no, don't worry, Ben. I was prepared to, to, to pick up there, but I can hear it behind you as well. What does that mean and how often does that happen? It happens uh, more times than I actually am counting. And I can tell you that this is simply the nature of this situation. As you can see, nobody's stopping their car running to the bomb shelters, nor are we. Uh, it's people have become so accustomed to it. Now, we were in the hospital yesterday where they did evacuate to the bomb shelters, but that's because, of course, it's a hospital with children and, and mothers. Uh, but by and large, we hear these air raid sirens and keep calm and carry on. Yeah, as you said, I mean, in, in your piece there as well, the mayor looking like a military chief and having got training years ago because he was preparing for this moment says a great deal, I think. Um, ben, what I was going to ask you was about the humanitarian corridors in, in Mariupol. We know people there have been stranded without basic utilities, heat, light, water now for, for many days and weeks. What hopes are there that these humanitarian corridors will be observed? Because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we've seen these agreed in the past and, and they failed. Well, they're trying it again. We understand that 17 buses are joining a column of 45 that are gathering to go into Mariupol uh, tomorrow to try to evacuate more people. We understand that more than 80,000 people have been evacuated to the town of Zaporizhia, uh, which is to the northeast of northwest of uh, Mariupol. But uh, the worry is, of course, that what we've seen multiple times is that 
All the preparations are made for these evacuations, humanitarian corridors, and then things fall apart. Oftentimes people are killed trying to escape, and many times they're simply forced either to make a run for it, their lives at risk, or go back to where they came from and hope for another chance to escape. Julia? Yeah, hope's the key here. Ben, great to have you with us. Stay safe, please. Ben Weedman there. The head of the UK's intelligence, security and cyber agency says Russian troops in Ukraine are low on morale and some of them are even disobeying orders. Just listen to this. We've seen Russian soldiers, short of weapons and morale, refusing to carry out orders, sabotaging their own equipment and even accidentally shooting down their own aircraft. And even though we believe Putin's advisers are afraid to tell him the truth. What's going on and the extent of these misjudgments must be crystal clear to the regime. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, clearly what we're seeing around the country is and are Russian troops that continue to fulfil their orders. But the idea that that some are accidentally shooting down their own planes. And it ties to a conversation, actually, that you and I have been having now for weeks, which goes back to Putin dressing down his own spy chief. The idea that perhaps he's not being told how bad the situation is doesn't surprise us or me. No, and, and I think anyone who sort of watch, watches autocrats or dictators knows that over time they tend to isolate themselves. They uh, diminish the threat to themselves by getting rid of anyone who sort of shows any kind of political or other acumen around them, um, relegating useful people to the back rooms and just having yes men around them. And ultimately, you arrive in a situation like this where uh, misjudgments are made. The worst thing, for a, worst thing for an autocrat is just to have somebody who's standing there and saying yes. And, and President Putin is paying the price for it now. The Russian people are play, paying the price for President Putin's mistakes, although perhaps they don't realize it because his propaganda denies that. But it's evident to the rest of the world. And I think what's evident as well to people like Jeremy Fleming, the head of the UK's GCHQ, the of the US NSC, if you like, uh, there, to, uh, that's apparent to them, is that Putin, not only, to, not only what he's saying is now apparent within the upper echelons of, of government within uh, Russia, but it's also apparent to uh, experts in governments around the world that Putin is not making good and smart and well-informed decisions. And therefore, that sort of raises the stakes on what other decisions he may make. Certainly, the evidence is there that he's not telling the truth to his population uh, and he's not being honest and open uh, and truthful with the Ukrainians. And it, it's, the more the war goes on, the more that becomes clear. Yeah, you have this image of him isolating himself professionally and socially, but we were just showing those images of those long tables as well. It's a, a physical isolation that he seems to be operating as well and, and has done for many weeks. Nick, thank you. Nick Robertson there. Now, sources tell CNN that U.S. President Biden is considering the largest ever release of oil from the U.S. strategic reserves to help address rising energy costs and the inflationary shock exacerbated by the Ukrainian war. The president expected to update Americans on his crisis policy later today. Reports say he's considering the release of some one million barrels of oil each day for several months. Oil falling on the news today. Both Brent and U.S. crude down 
by around 5%. Context, however, is everything. Both Brent and U.S. crude still up by more than 60% year-to-date and still near levels they were trading at last week. What would truly be a game-changer, of course, is if OPEC decided to pump more OPEC Plus oil ministers meeting today but stuck to their policy of boosting supplies only modestly. Claire Sebastian back with us. Claire, put that oil release that we're expecting to hear from the president into context. And the problem for me is that it's just temporary. It's not a persistent release of oils coming onto the market and all the oil market reacts to that or doesn't. Right, Julie. I mean, prices have uh, fallen today based on that uh, expected announcement. And it is unprecedented in scale. I think it's worth pointing out 180 million barrels is the the number that a lot of analysts are throwing around today. That would be the largest ever release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, that the U.S. has. That speaks to how critical the U.S. thinks this crisis is. It speaks to the fact that they perhaps did not expect OPEC to do anything in terms of accelerating its production uh, increases today. And it would have an impact, even though it's short term, it would have an impact. Commerce Bank said today that if that happens, uh, as expected, the oil market would no longer be undersupplied in the second quarter and in fact would even be oversupplied in the third quarter according to the IEA forecast. So that is significant. Significant also as I mentioned because of the tension with OPEC plus which met today which didn't change its scheduled production increases for May. Unwilling perhaps to do anything to bring down prices even as the US is working in itself to bring down prices. So a very interesting tension. But again, this would be unprecedented from the United States if uh, President Biden announces this as expected today. Buy some time. And speaking of buying, you and I were discussing the Russian demand from unfriendly nations on their energy purchases to be made in rubles. It seems like we have a workaround. Yeah, they seem to have walked back this demand a little bit. I mean, they're not presenting it as having having walked it back. But there was a, a readout from from Germany yesterday of a conversation between President Putin and their Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, which apparently Putin said that what would happen would be that, that, that this, this law, which would be enacted to, to force, as they had said, unfriendly nations to pay for gas and rubles, that would not apply, he said, to European partners, according to this readout, that they would simply be able to, to pay euros as usual to Gazprom Bank, which would then funnel rubles rubles to Russia. This was backed up today by by Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who said that de facto uh, nothing would change for for Russia's gas clients, that they would simply be able to buy rubles, he said, in the currency that they currently pay for gas in. So I think, look, Olaf Scholz said, said, according to this readout, that he hasn't agreed to this yet, that he wants to see it in writing. Russia has promised that the sort of concrete proposal on this will be coming, quote, soon. So I think we do need to see that because it is still a little unclear exactly how this workaround is going to work. Yes. And those that say that the sanctions don't go far enough and that there are still unsanctioned banks that allow this kind of financial transaction currently have their head in their hands because this is exactly the problem and goes back to Europe's energy vulnerabilities we were discussing yesterday. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Okay, straight ahead. Amazon, primed to lend a helping hand in war-torn Europe. How the e-commerce giant transformed a logistics hub into a bustling centre for humanitarian aid. That story and more next. Welcome back. Millions of Ukrainian refugees are facing many daunting challenges, but one in particular, how to make a living after being forced to leave their homes behind. Well, one of the companies that aims to help is the ADECA Group, a global staffing agency. This month, it launched a free jobs website to help displaced Ukrainians connect with employers. 
1,000 job seekers signed on within just the first few days. Alain Duras joins us now. He's the CEO of ADECO Group. Alain, great to have you with us. It's clearly a multi-layered humanitarian crisis that we're dealing with, but businesses can help play a crucial role, particularly in this regard. Absolutely. And um, on the 24th of February, when the war started, uh, we had more than 1,700 Ukrainian colleagues working as associates for us in Poland. And so we immediately started to uh, to support them and their families because they did want to to reunify. And then when we saw that our support platform was functioning very well, we started also to offer it to our customers and, and their employees. And, and a few weeks later, when we saw this wave of refugees coming in different countries like Poland, Romania and so on, we decided to, to launch this uh, free to post platform to support all refugees because our purpose at uh, the ADECO group is to really make the, the future work for everyone. And this, this is a way for us to uh, provide some kind of financial stability, ability for this refugee eventually to start a new life, to integrate socially and, and secure the future. And this platform has a great success. After 14 days, there are already more than 2,600 applicants. You have 800 companies having subscribed to it, uh, 4,000 open vacancies as of yesterday, and more than 1,000 concrete job offers have been already done. So really, uh, we are pleased with that. Yeah, I mean, it's a drop in the ocean and the scale of what 10 million people in this case displaced, 4 million people having left. But I guess you have to assume that actually this is early days. In the short term, people are just dealing with getting where they're going, the basics like food, blankets, the job requirements and offers come later. So do you expect this to probably exponentially rise over the coming weeks? That's what indeed uh, we expect for sure. It, it, it depends also how this uh, situation will, will develop because many of them would love to come back to their country. Sure. And so that's why they are in a kind of, of waiting situation. But going forward and even to, uh, let's say, to also occupy your, your mind, uh, it's a good way to, to work. And this platform allow them to uh, to get some work, so we, we are very happy. And yes, indeed, you see already the figures after 14 days. So we expect this platform to, uh, to grow uh, exponentially. Yeah, and you raise such a great point that the hope for many of these people is that they can go home and go back to the jobs that they had before. So you're dealing with that fact as well. Um, just talk to me a bit about the platform because it's not just about jobs matching between employers and, and potential employees. You offer things like training modules, uh, curriculum building, counselling, reskilling help as well. I mean, these are all critical elements for, for all workers, never mind for these refugees, but you are helping them in many other ways, perhaps too, if they should require it and want it. Absolutely. First, this is a free to post platform. So it's not, a, a, as such, it is not an adequate platform. So we, we don't take any uh, revenue ad advantage of this platform. But on the other side, we make sure that every single uh, applicant receive uh, a good advice regarding the way he or she has uh, written uh, the, the curriculum vitae, uh, the, the curriculum vitae, the motivation uh, that uh, he or she has. 
Um, we are really uh, also uh, advising the companies to offer training, upskilling, reskilling, because these people have benefited from from education, from training in their countries, but sometimes they need some kind of upskilling uh, or light reskilling to be able to perform the duty uh, in a new environment. And that's why we, we propose also through this platform so that as soon as possible, they can get a, a job and uh, secure in a certain way their, their future and integrate socially. What kind of sectors are you seeing job offers in? I saw administration, hospitality, even healthcare. I mean, I'm assuming people like doctors and nurses have remained to help those who they can in the country. But even in that sphere, for those that perhaps have been displaced and are moving to other countries, whether those skills are acknowledged, even if basic caring skills are transferable clearly wherever you are. Yeah. Uh, what, what we see is first from, from the company sites, 90% of the, the, the subscribing companies are coming out of Europe. But we have also companies uh, from the US, uh, from New Zealand, even o Australia. Then when we look more at uh, the applicants, we see that, yes, for 85%, they are women. That's, uh, th that's normal because of, of the situation we know for, uh, for Ukraine. Uh, but 30% of them have skills uh, in administration. 18% uh, of them, of these applicants, have application experience in social care and 7% in logistics. So we are also trying to, to deal with this present uh, skills and competencies and see where they can be uh, applicable. Sometimes with a light upskilling, reskilling, you can also put them at work in other areas. And that's what... Uh, we try to do with this platform. I mean, we should be clear as well to, to our audience, you have previous experience in dealing with this kind of issue from refugees created from Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan too, and matching them to, to jobs and to roles in countries European, as you mentioned, uh, France, Italy, Greece and the UK. Are these the ones that perhaps are best set up to offer roles to refugees to get them started to get them the training that they need perhaps even the language skills or is it wider than that across europe what's your what's your experience there are all in the vast majority uh, in our experience there are three major obstacles that uh, that both refugees companies and us have to uh, uh, to circumvent the first is always the language because mm. if you work in a country or in a region uh, for many jobs, you need to master the local language. So that's that's the first uh, obstacle. The, the second obstacle is uh, the regulatory environment, because uh, in many, for example, in many European countries, you are not allowed to work immediately once you have uh, uh, get into the country, but there is a certain waiting period. Fortunately, in this case, the, all the European countries have changed rapidly their law so that they can, that companies, local companies put, can put rapidly at work these, these refugees. But this is the, the second point, regulatory environment. And the third, it is all about skills and qualifications. For some, uh, for some roles, you need certified qualification from, yes. from local uh, uh, environment. Uh, but for some others, it's, it's just a question of, of, uh, of upskilling uh, very rapidly so that the, the, the person in question can rapidly be uh, integrated into the way uh, of doing in the country. And so we are working together with our customers. We are also motivating our customers to, 
to take the necessary step on, on the three aspects uh, to get these people rapidly at work. Yeah, I mean, we have so many refugees in this case for however long this process needs streamlining uh, to your to your broader point. Now, I know you don't have any direct workers or operations in Ukraine or Russia, but you do have plenty of Ukrainians, Russians, Belarusians too, colleagues and associates within the group. Um, how do you handle that? How do you handle the, the sensitivity of the, the conflict that we're seeing when you have members fr from all sides? Yeah, <clears throat> it relates to our purpose, to make the future work for everyone. So for us, the nationality, the religion, the, the, the sex or the, the belief is not important. So we, we, we try to help uh, as many people as we can. Uh, we don't make politics. Uh, so uh, for us, our job is, is really to, to provide work and, and thanks to this work to integrate uh, people in the local society and, and hopefully uh, come and contribute to a to peaceful environment because when people have work, uh, they are busy, they are earning money, they are stable, both financial, financially and socially and emotionally. And, and we think that's where we have our, our biggest impact is on that. And whatever the nationality also inside the company, we, we promote this purpose to, to, to make the future work for everyone. And yes, we have different nationalities, including Russian one in the company, but we take distance uh, uh, of that. Yes, there are a lot of people suffering and going to suffer as a result of politics and, and political ambition, to your point. Alain, thank you. Alain de Hayes, thank you for what you and your team are doing, the CEO of ADECO Group there. Stay with CNN. More to come. Welcome back. A convoy of 17 buses is on its way to help evacuate residents still in Mariupol. Ukraine says Russia has agreed to an evacuation corridor for the city, which has been devastated after weeks of intense bombing. But days after Russia claimed it would drastically reduce military activity, Ukraine says Russian forces may be regrouping in Belarus. The Pentagon and NATO say around 20 percent of Russian forces targeting Kyiv are repositioning, with some heading to Belarus. Meanwhile, U.S. officials say Russian President Vladimir Putin is being misinformed by his advisers over how badly the Russian military is performing. And we've actually just heard from President Putin himself doubling down on his assistance that countries pay for Russian natural gas in rubles, not euros or dollars, as the contract says. And he said he signed a decree that starting tomorrow, April 1st, countries who do not pay in rubles from Russian bank accounts will face consequences. So active contracts will be suspended. So in a situation when the financial systems of Western countries are weaponized and uh, companies from these countries refuse to perform their contracts with Russian banks, companies and individuals, and when assets in dollars and euros are frozen, there is no point using the currencies of these countries. 
what is happening, what has happened already. We have supplied our resources, gas in this case, to European customers. They have received us. Uh, they received it, then they paid us euros, and then they froze these payments. Um, so in this case, there is every reason to believe that we supplied some of the gas to Europe for free. So that would be consistent, I believe, with what we were discussing earlier on in the show. You make the payment to an unsanctioned Russian bank in euros or dollars. It's then converted to rubles and then paid to Gazprom. So we'll have to get further details. Remember, the Germans said they, they wanted to see this in writing in order to agree to it. So any further headlines on that, we will bring them to you. For now, the scale of Europe's refugee crisis is staggering and it's growing by the day. New figures show more than four million Ukrainians have fled their country during the now five-week-old Russian invasion, many of them leaving with few possessions and very little chance of at least in the short term returning to their homes. Amazon is one of the many global companies using its technical and logistics know-how to get help to these people. In just 10 days, Amazon took 5,000 square meters of warehouse space in Slovakia and transformed it into what the company calls its largest humanitarian aid facility ever. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy tweeting just last week, first shipments of critical supplies just arrived at a fulfillment center in Slovakia. We've converted into a humanitarian aid hub. This will get help charities need and needed items to Ukrainian families faster. The center is one of a number of programs launched by Amazon to help people in the region, including employment support for refugees and technical support for humanitarian groups. And Jay Carney joins us now. He's Amazon's Senior Vice President for Policy and Press. Jay, always great to have you on the show. Let's talk about that fulfillment facility in Slovakia. It's huge and it's getting help directly to where people need it. It is, Julia, thank you for having me. We, we were able to set this up in 10 days, in part because we've leveraged our logistics for natural disaster response in the past, and we're able to uh, use those learnings to help set this up very quickly in Slovakia. Like you said, 5,000 uh, uh, square meters and uh, just a, a, a lot and lot of uh, humanitarian aid flowing through that. We're working with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, as well as Save the Children, uh, to um, to get the you know the aid, the supplies that Ukrainians need, and that those uh, NGOs identify uh, to Ukrainians. I can also tell you today we haven't uh, announced this until this moment, but we launched a, a second humanitarian aid hub in Poland. Uh, this week. Uh, it's a facility uh, almost as large, 4,500 square meters, and it's a space that's now ready to prepare and deliver millions of relief supplies uh, to refugee camps uh, through the same partners on the ground that we've been we've been working with. So you know, this is an opportunity where because of the, the logistics capacity that we have, we feel like we can uh, be part of the uh, solution now with this uh, awful refugee humanitarian crisis in Europe. Wow, so you've now got two of these hubs. And, and just to be clear, because I know people will be wondering, you set these up at Amazon's own expense. Oh, yes, uh, completely. And and the the we are donating millions of supplies directly from Amazon, uh, as well as uh, making, I think we've now uh, donated more than 12 million just in cash donations to more than 100 relief organizations. Uh, so the supplies, yeah, there are no, there's no profit involved here. It's all... Um, uh, direct relief. 
Thanks, Jay. And, and just to be clear on what you're providing as well, it's classic Amazon model. You're, you're working backwards from what refugees in the moment require, working out what you have, what you don't have, finding those supplies if you don't have, packing them up and, and getting them to where they're needed as fast as possible. That's right. And we, and we needed those uh, hubs in Slovakia and now in Poland so that we could uh, position the aid as close as possible <clears throat> to where uh, the refugees uh, were and and where they're flowing into. So, uh, you know, that allows us to uh, get the products, the supplies that we need to those uh, hubs and then and then to the people who need them, working with, with NGOs who know what they're doing. Uh, we're also um, providing opportunities for uh, customers in our European sites uh, to uh, make donations through wish lists, you know, uh, supplies that NGOs have identified that refugees need. Uh, if customers in those countries uh, want to uh, add to the wish list, add, you know, add uh, buy supplies for refugees, they can do that. We also, excuse me, we also um, uh, have uh, an opportunity on all of our gateway sites, all of our home pages, essentially, uh, to uh, for customers to make donations uh, as well to the uh, select NGOs that are really helping. Can you tell me? Can you can you put a level on and how much? in terms of value you've received in terms of donations from Amazon customers so far? Uh, I know that there are tens of thousands of customers. I don't know, um, you know, who have made just cash donations uh, through our homepages. Uh, or supplies. You know, we, uh, well, they do, yeah. There's, so we know tens of thousands have made cash donations. Uh, thousands also have uh, given supplies uh, through these wish lists. And we do that in our sites in Europe because we want to make sure that the products they're selecting are located close to the refugees themselves. Um, so we're also at, uh, leveraging our AWS, our cloud uh, service yes. provider company, uh, technology assistance to NGOs that need it to, um, to help them uh, you know, in this critical time with information flow and data flow and to, uh, and to uh, help also with the effort to you know, sustain uh, internet connectivity uh, for uh, those uh, humanitarian relief organizations and others that are working on the ground to help in this crisis. Yeah, I was going to go there next because obviously Amazon Web Services is such a huge part of the, the broader business as well. I believe you've also been playing a role assisting with cybersecurity threats. I just wanted to ask you sort of what you've seen over the past six weeks in particular. And can you give us any sense of, of whether that's state actor involvement that, that you're witnessing? What can you tell us on that front? Yeah, I know that there's been... Um a lot of activity. I don't, Julia. I wish I could be more helpful on this, but I, I, I can't say authoritatively whether it's it's state activity. Uh, but I, you know, as others have reported, there's been, uh, you know, there have been um, cyber attacks, and and you know, we are able to help with uh, lend our expertise uh, as as we always have in in these situations to uh, government authorities to help combat them. But uh, I, I can't I, I can't identify the culprits myself. No, don't worry. I have to ask. Um, I was expecting that response. Sure. Um, <laughs> talk to me about the Welcome Door initiative, too. I believe it's also already available in the United States. It's going to be global or at least imminent in the United States and the rest of the world by the end of the year. And this is jobs for refugees. And just to be clear, it's not just mm -hmm. about Ukrainian refugees. I know you've been doing it more broadly, but what can you tell me on this and, and how quickly this can be up and running, too? Well, we signed the, the tent partnership. We signed on to that, which is to provide immediate support uh, and, and address longer term needs to Ukrainian uh, refugees. Um, we also launched Welcome Door, which is a program to provide refugees 
employed by the company with additional resources and support because it's not obviously just enough in this situation when you're suddenly homeless and maybe stateless uh, to, uh, to just get a job. So it's free legal assistance, help, uh, you know, that legal assistance helping them on a path to citizenship. Um, Ukrainian refugees hired by Amazon uh, will have access to this and uh, we'll start uh, launching it next month in the U.S. and then expand globally uh, as the year progresses. Uh, so we're, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to, the things that we have, the assets we have, the capabilities we have that, that we can leverage to help in this crisis, we're, you know, we're trying to do everything we can. The problem is huge, as you know, that's why I know, you know, it's, it's more than one government needs to help, more than one company, all the NGOs that are doing incredible work. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just watching on CNN, uh, what's, what's happening in Ukraine is just heartbreaking. I, I don't know if you know, but I was a reporter and uh, what was in the Soviet Union uh, in the early 90s, and I covered the collapse of the Soviet Union. I spent a lot of time in Ukraine covering the independence movement in Ukraine and the and then the independence of Ukraine. And, and seeing this is just awful and heartbreaking. Yeah, we were there at the same time, Jay. I, um, I, feel, I feel exactly what you're feeling at this moment, I think. Um, it's actually what I was going to ask you next. Um, and I know you've, as a business, have suspended shipping products to, to, to Russia and access to, to Prime TV, for example. But something stood out to me and I wondered whether it went back to precisely what you were saying in your experiences. And that is that Amazon and Amazon Web Services have no data centers. You have no infrastructure, no offices in Russia and a longstanding policy of not doing business with the Russian government. Quote, Jay, why all of these things? It would, these were judgments made by our business leaders and senior leadership at the company a number of years ago about whether it was a wise course to take to 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 do business there to build infrastructure to to have I mean business with the Russian government <clears throat> and and you know I think the assessment then was that there were too many risks uh, involved in in doing that and obviously now um, we we look back on that decision and and are glad that we made it. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we, we're in a lot of places around the world, but we're not everywhere. And we make judgments about where we should and shouldn't be. Other tech companies are there. Well, that's, that is true. That is true. And, you know, again, I, I don't, I, I think we can look back on the decision we made at Amazon, not especially not to, you know, to build, you know, to make capital investments there and to build infrastructure there or to locate offices there. And, and then importantly, to do business with, not to do business with the Russian government as, you know, that was what we thought was a sound business decision given uh, circumstances there even, you know, years ago and uh, risks associated with that. And, and we're glad we made that decision. Jay, very quickly, I think it's very important for businesses and for leaders to draw a distinction between government in Russia and the Russian people, because they're also facing restrictions and, and implications of decisions made by the government. Can can I just briefly get you to talk on that? Sure, it is it is difficult, and it, there's no question that in a circumstance like this, where you have sanctions, for example, being implemented uh, uh, to a degree that we've never seen, at least I've never seen in my lifetime, uh, with uh, across uh, governments, uh, Western governments, uh, you know that that's going to have a negative effect on uh, the well-being of Russian citizens, who obviously. Are not the Russian government, but it is unfortunately, I think, you know, a, a lever that the West has, that uh, that NATO has, short of 
engaging in a fighting war that that can be very powerful and effective in in ensuring that President Putin and his regime pay a price for for this invasion. Uh, it's it's terrible to see when when innocent citizens of a country um, run by a, a, an autocrat uh, suffer because of those uh, the, the decisions the leader makes and the regime makes. Um, but it's uh, you know it's it's really there aren't too many options that that governments have or that companies have. Uh, you know, we try to we try to make that distinction. You know, it's it was part of our decision not to do business with the government. Uh, but uh, as opposed to with citizens, but the but it's it's hard to it's hard to differentiate, obviously, in a situation like this. Yeah, particularly at this moment. Jay, always great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you for what you and the team are doing. There'll always be criticism that you're not doing enough, but I'm saying thank you. Jay Carney, uh, Senior Vice President for Policy and Press at Amazon. And I think you have a phone call to answer there and definitely an email or two. Sorry about that. <laughs> we'll let you get to it. <laughs> thank you. Take care. We'll speak soon. Bye. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. NATO is saying that Russian troops are regrouping and not withdrawing. Saying that, they are focusing on their offensive in Ukraine's Donbass region, as the defense minister said they would earlier this week, while keeping pressure, though, on the capital. CNN's Fred Pleitkin traveled outside Kyiv to get a closer look at the fighting and some of the destruction. His report contains some graphic images. Through heavily fortified checkpoints, we reached the edge of Kiev at the suburb Irpin. Suddenly, on top of the artillery barrages, we hear gunfire. Yeah, gunfire. Much closer, and we have to take cover. This is what it sounds like after Russia said it has scaled down its military operations around Kiev. Even in the calmer moments, the big guns are never silent. This is the final checkpoint before you would reach the district of Irpin, but it's impossible for us to go there right now simply because it's much too dangerous. It's also impossible for the people who live there to come back to their homes because there's still so much shelling going on and so much unexploded ordnance still on the ground. Irpin was heavily contested between Russian and Ukrainian forces as Vladimir Putin's troops attempted to push through to Kiev. Now, the Ukrainians say they've pushed the Russians back, taken control, and released this graphic video of the aftermath. Buildings and cars destroyed, dead bodies still lying in the streets. Ukraine's security emergency service has now also released this video, showing rescuers taking out at least some of the dead while under fire from Russian artillery. Some of the remaining residents were also brought to safety, including many children, Irpin's mayor tells me. Now Irpin is 100% Ukrainian. We are taking out the wounded and dead bodies. Today and yesterday we evacuated approximately 500 people. Today I myself evacuated about 50 children and 100 adults. The evacuees are brought to this base outside of Irpin. It's not only people. Aid groups are now also evacuating the animals left behind when their owners had to flee, including these puppies. We have volunteers who are going under the fire and picking the animals on the street. So you're going under fire, you're going into Irpin and picking animals yes. up. Yes, yes, yes. 
The Ukrainian army says it's in the process of pushing Russian troops further out of this area, hoping to silence Putin's guns and restore calm to this once quaint suburb. Fred Plekin, CNN, Kiev, Ukraine. And we're back after this. Welcome back. A cautious tone on global stock markets as investors fear broken withdrawal promises by Russia will only prolong the five-week-old Ukrainian war. Fresh data out of China, meanwhile, showing activity in that country's manufacturing and services sector also contracting too, raising new fears about slowing global growth. China's weak numbers helping pressure oil prices, as well as reports that President Biden will announce a new and substantial release of oil from the U.S. strategic reserves to help ease supply concerns and pricing pressures. And we're talking as much as one million barrels a day for months. Oil currently down, as you can see, around 3%, retracing half of its earlier losses. And here's why. As we said moments ago, the Russian president has signed a decree ordering payment for natural gas in rubles. Just take a listen to what he said. For trading in Russian natural gas, gas with the so-called unfriendly states, we um, suggest that counterparties in these countries use a very simple and transparent scheme. In order to buy Russian gas, they need to open ruble accounts in Russian banks and payments should come from these accounts for gas supplied as of tomorrow, 1st of April this year. If these payments are not made, we shall deem this as um, non-performance on the part of the buyers, um, and that will lead to consequences. Nobody gives us anything for free, and we are not about to be charitable. So active contracts will be suspended. Today, I signed a decree. Okay, so obviously oil has reacted slightly negatively on this. Remember that President Putin is speaking to a particular audience here, and he's also spoken to both the German Chancellor and the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi this week. And the message that they got was, look, Oil's not going to be cut off. There's going to have to be a payment made in euros and dollars that will then be switched for rubles within Russia, in a Russian bank, in order to make these payments in rubles. So what we heard from President Putin there, I don't think is inconsistent with that concept. Perhaps the biggest challenge is the timing on this and that it has to happen from tomorrow, from April 1st. So that might be some of the concern that you're seeing in oil markets. But beyond the logistical challenges of doing this, I don't think it's inconsistent with those contracts being obeyed. You make the payment for Russian energy in dollars or euros, that then gets converted into rubles and then the payment is made to Russia. Any further headlines on that, we will bring it to you. But that's it for the show for now. Stay with CNN. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next. 